Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published and write with confidence. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. Our team is passionate about all things writing and in these podcasts, we'll be talking to best-selling authors on their craft. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hi, I'm Danielle Williams from the Sydney Writers' Centre in Milsons Point. Today I'm really excited to be talking to journalist and author Chris Masters. Chris will be well known to audiences of Four Corners. He's their longest serving journalist. Uh, he's also the author of four books and his latest is Uncommon Soldier. Chris, tell us a bit more about the book. Well, I started to think about the book about six years ago. It always takes me too long to do this work because, you know, I, I dig in and then all I do for the first little while is find out what I don't know. And, I, and this one was more difficult than usual. Um, the Defence Force is particularly resistant to having its story told. It doesn't really trust journalists. They think Afghanistan is too complicated and uh, um, too dangerous. Uh, and, and of course, at the other end of it, our own industry uh, is dying around our ears. So I don't think Afghanistan was too well covered by the media. Um, I had another book in mind uh, when I finished the Jonestown book, which also took me too long. Interesting that you know this is that that, that, that was a, a book where I had a negative view of the subject right from the start, uh, but and naturally enough, I expected it to be difficult. And investigative journalism is difficult. Um, the new book, Uncommon Soldier, is a book where I pretty much had a positive view from the start. I think uh, the Australian Army is something this country tends to get right, and uh, the young soldiers that I met were a lot more impressive than people realise. Um, but still in all, it was every bit as difficult to do as Jonestown for a range of reasons. Um, the motive to do the book in the first place was born of a trip to Kapuka, the Army Training Centre in 2006. I was just doing a Four Corners program uh, about recruitment and training and I became interested in that, uh, in fact fascinated by that notion that you could be a civilian on the street corner being a nuisance, a 17 years old nuisance, and then 18 months later you're a completely different person. You're, you're in uniform, you're a trained up soldier and you're operating in this very complicated environment, uh, Afghanistan. So that I thought there was a book in that very process, uh, and that became my narrative arc. And it's always good in journalism to have some angry questions, you know, and, and one was obviously what the hell is going on in Afghanistan? How come we know so little about it? How come there is such a massive gap between uh, public regard for the conflict and bipartisan political support for the conflict? Uh, so that was there were there were a lot of uh, good spaces to occupy, mm. and I I came back from Afghanistan in 2007, having done another Four Corners program over there, still with a different book in mind, and I spoke to Alan Unwin, my publisher, 
and I was talking about the other book that I had planned, but at the same time I was also talking about my fresh experiences of Afghanistan. And they said, why don't you write about Afghanistan? And I blinked and thought about it, and I didn't have a good answer. I thought, no, why don't I write about Afghanistan? So, so that was when I wrote the first chapter, soon after that meeting. And uh, then, then I walked through quicksand for quite some time because I hadn't anticipated how difficult it was going to be for me to get into the world of a soldier. So um, you've mentioned... You're calling this a book about Afghanistan, but ultimately it's about the soldiers as well and the notions we have about diggers and that sort of thing. What do you hope that readers will get out of this? What new information about the army and the war do you think? Well, I think they, I think they have a, a vision of soldiering that's born of another time. You know, they know what their granddads and their fathers did. Um, I don't think they so much know about what their brothers and sisters are now doing. So I don't think many of us, I felt when I was at Four Corners, I couldn't see anybody else on the floor who, whose lives in any way interconnected with the lives of anybody in the ADF. So it seemed to me that we had a proud culture on the one hand and, and a new detached subculture on the other hand. So I wanted to, to somewhat uh, bridge that divide. Um, but you've hit on an interesting subject for a writer because... I believe in telling a story, you know. I don't particularly like the polemic. I don't want to tell people how to think about something. I'm, I don't think I'm so good at the analysis. Uh, what I'm better at is what I've learned to do, and that's collect the evidence and go, go to the primary evidence. So as usual, I, I wanted to write a book that way. But, but what I was looking at all the time was, was an issue you know, uh, what is special and different about the Australian soldier? Is the Afghanistan conflict worth it? How do you reconcile their behaviour abroad with the stories we hear at home of them being misogynist, bullheads, you know, harassment, bullying, all that sort of stuff? Um, and, I, I, and, and that was a bit of a challenge for me to, to put the story ahead of the issue. And I felt that it wasn't as if I had one story, I had a couple. I, I had to interweave two essential threads. One was the story of Afghanistan and one was the world of the modern soldier. And indeed, the book interweaves those chapters. I go abroad, spend some time in the battlefield, and then I come home to another battlefield. And, and uh, that was that interweaving happened somewhat organically. I struggled at first. As I struggled to gain access to that world, it wasn't really until I went to Afghanistan a second time and started to live among the soldiers that I felt the book was beginning to work. When it, when it, uh, uh, when it was um, coming together as theory, that is, me sitting down, interviewing soldiers back from the field, talking about what they did, it was good, but it really wasn't good enough. You know, it wasn't really good enough until I, I got to Afghanistan and bunked down beside them and nodded off to sleep, listening to them talking to one another. That's yeah. where I felt that was, that was really uh, 
um, a rich opportunity. Um, is, is that where you felt um, that some of that mistrust of the media maybe dropped away when you had a chance to spend more time with them absolutely. on the ground? Yeah, yeah. And look, I'd known this for a long time. It was true of all the work I did at Four Corners. Um, the, the media is fast and furious. It's, it's, it's uh, it, it, you know, it, it's not thorough and accurate. It's always been that way. And it's unusual to work in journalism where you have more time to build trust. And that was my lot at Four Corners. So I never had the excuse that it's all too hard. You know, they put too many obstacles in your way, so you simply can't do it. So go and embed with the Americans or the British, which is what a lot of my colleagues were doing. I didn't uh, really have that excuse, and I had the opportunity over time, and by the way, I'm now a freelancer, so I didn't have a daily deadline or even a weekly deadline or a monthly deadline to meet, so I could keep knocking on the doors. I, I, I'm still a bit cross that they made it so enormously difficult, and they're wrong. They're wrong in the way they, they deal with media. They, they should recognise that we are a bit shambolic, and they should just take a deep breath and trust us a little bit more, and the way the Americans do I mean, you think of it, the scandals the associated with the behaviour of American troops, and yet the public regard for the American servicemen is much higher than it is here in Australia. You know, they stand up for them when they, when they get on a bus. Why do you think that's so different here in Australia? Has the media been particularly unkind to um, forces in the past, or is it...? I think there's been a drift... You know, there, 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 were, there, was a, there was a proud relationship uh, between journalists and the military in the First and Second World War. Um, journalists were esteemed chroniclers of, uh, of the world of the soldier. And, you know, you, you think of Charles Bean, of course, yeah. you know, the author of Anzac. And, but then some great correspondents from the Second World War, Kenneth Slesser and... Alan Moorhead, uh, uh, George uh, Johnson, uh, many more. Uh, but um, somehow in the Vietnam era, the journalists took over the chronicling. The soldiers didn't like it quite so much. You don't have so many books written by soldiers about Vietnam. And of course, Vietnam was a catalyst in many respects. It made the military very mistrustful of the media and giving media access to these conflicts because you know they will still argue that it was the, the journalists who lost the war silly argument of course mm. but you know you hear it from time to time and I think uh, the the relationships changed very much after after Vietnam they became extremely suspicious of us and they were particularly controlling uh, during the Gulf War and uh, so, so I think they developed some pretty bad habits, changed uh, in East Timor. Because, of course, there is a time when they really need the public on their side and they felt that they were on the right side in East Timor. Um, some journalists complained about problems of access, but I actually was surprised when I went there and quite a few times and uh, they were extremely cooperative. But Afghanistan, very different. Yeah. You know, I think they were, at one level, they were genuinely frightened that... Uh, a journalist would be killed because it is so dangerous. And in that new world, the journalist, in some respects, is a bigger and more attractive target than the soldier because they know, the Taliban know, they will get more ink. Yeah. 
And, you know, they've been kidnapping journalists from other nations for that very reason. It puts pressure on government. Um, so I think there was that concern, but there were many, many more concerns. And there was even a sort of base cultural difficulty, and that is that when that group forms, when the mates all get together and the team becomes more important than the individual, they don't really let the individual speak. So um, one of the reasons I think my colleagues preferred to embed with the Americans or the British is that it's just a lot easier. You know, you, you just pull your camera out of the box and they appear and they perform, the Americans in particular. Uh, pull your camera out of the box amongst the Australians and they'd scatter. Yeah. So on that, um, when you're interviewing the individuals, uh, often you're speaking to them about quite terrifying events, some ultimately tragic. How do, how do you approach an interview like that, where it's, you know, the potential for... I tell you what, you really need the permission of the group. It's a very, very... It's, okay. it's, 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 it's a rare circumstance where a soldier tells you about what they did. I mean, this happened to me. I... There was one interview that I did that people remarked on and still thought, gee, young soldier, 22-year-old private, but but very candid, very honest and very brave. But when, when I first spoke with him, met him, up, met him on a patrol out in the Donga in the, the Mirabad Valley and uh, somebody said, you ought to talk to him. So I did and I said, how's it going? What have you been doing? Nothing, nothing, nothing. You know, fine. Didn't say a word. And then later on, when I was back at the base, somebody said to me, how did the interview go with Smithy? And I said, oh, I was okay, but he didn't really say much. What? Next thing you know, they arranged for Smithy to do another interview with me, and they told him, go and tell him, tell him what you did. You know, this is a bloke who'd been blown up by an IED and, uh, you know, was, was in all sorts of drama. Yeah. And then came back to the battlefield because he... He wanted to be with his mates. I mean, that story happened to me many times. With special forces, I the first uh, uh, chapter of the book is called Corporal Dan, and it's about the experience of one special forces soldier. I have to say I thought he was pretty special in that somehow, somehow he, he, he thought it was important that he tell me his story. And I absolutely got that impression from that chapter. Yeah. Um, he'd, he certainly seemed a lot more open than... Yes, and look, that, that doesn't happen very often. Uh, I, think, uh, I think it was part of his greater maturity that he thought, look, look we, we ought to be sharing this story. You know, it, we're, we're proud of our story and it is not well known. Um, but poor old Corporal Dan, he will cop it. No doubt about it, you know. And I know he's, already, he's now a sergeant, but uh, I think he's a strong enough and good enough, mature enough soldier to be able to cope with, with the trashing mm. that he will get from his mates. But yeah. he will get it. So earlier you mentioned that you spent six years on this book. Six years, is that right? Yeah, it started yeah, in yeah. 06, yeah. Um, that's a lot of research. Yeah. When you get to the writing process, how do you go about... I guess culling that, ordering it, planning it. Did you have to make really tough decisions about what stayed in and what came out? Um, everything, everything seems. Every new book you do, you know, you you learn something new. And uh, I thought I'd be more organised and ordered than, than when when I wrote the last book. And in some respects, I'm getting better at marshalling research. So for the sake of endnotes, etc. 
Um, but, um, but, but I had that challenge of, of how the story would unfold. And I, I like a story to unfold organically. I, I want the reader to want to turn the page. Um, and it, I didn't really have a natural course. I had this interweaving of these two threads. But as they will often tell you, you just have to write, you have to sit down and start writing. And that's what my mother, who's a great writer, she would say. She said, I never know how I'm going to finish my book. And if I don't know how I'm going to finish it, then the, the reader won't know either. Um, so there was, a, there was a little bit of that. But when I started that interweaving, it just started to work. And honestly, halfway through the book, there are a couple of chapters that appear that I'd never planned to be there, but they just... But when I got to that point, it was as if um, they had a natural place. Yeah. There was one chapter that got lost that I threw away uh, because when I came back from Afghanistan... In, I wanted that. I wanted an early chapter that encapsulated the broader story, that acted as a kind of headline, and the Corporal Dan chapter does that for me because his experience span the the, the the length of the mission, roughly, uh, and also there's a lot more else to say because he's an interesting person. He he he's a good character study. So I could do a lot with that simple chapter and I, and I wanted, as they'd say in television, to put, put the reader in the armchair. Um, but I'd written a different chapter to do the same thing earlier after I came back from Afghanistan in 2010 and I'd had some dramatic experiences there and I think I had a good story to tell. Uh, so I'd written a chapter about patrol base Wali and it was essentially about communication I think that one of the difficulties we have with soldiers is that they just speak a completely different language, so you just don't understand what they're talking about. Um, but on the other hand, if you amongst them, you come to realise that amongst themselves at least, they are very good communicators. They have to be able to communicate swift and sharp. Lives might depend on it. And the other thing that they're really good at, that the rest of us tend to be not so good at, is listening. They're great listeners, because you learn that from your first weeks at Kapuka, that you have to understand what the order is. So that first chapter was much more about the art of communication, the mysterious relationship between the officer commanding and the company sergeant major, and how they kind of came to understand the battlefield but it wasn't the kind of chapter... that was the chapter that, that worked more in a polemic than in a story. Right. And, uh, and it wasn't as good as Corporal Dan. And, and was it I didn't, difficult for you personally to cut that? I, I, I never like to waste time. I never, never like to waste words. But, but then again, you know, you know we all do it. Yeah. And we know our work is better for it. And that book got culled pretty extensively. Uh, and, but not by me, by the editor. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I like a creative editor. Yeah, most yep. of the time. Um, was there anything in your experiences in the time that you were spending with the soldiers that really surprised you? Um, no, yeah, was look, I was the first thing is that that I was surprised at how intelligent and mature they they generally are, and how difficult and complicated their work is. 
and uh, I, I had to get my head around this new notion of the soldier as the humanitarian, mm -hmm. which is something we, we, we're all going to have to get our head around because uh, you can't send aid workers into the field in places like that, so the soldiers end up doing that themselves. And the creed of counterinsurgency warfare is courageous restraint. Now, this is not easy for a soldier to be in a situation where they're protecting a population that continues to shoot at them. But that's the deal, and it's even got, it even got worse, that deal, because some of their own allies began to shoot at them as well. But, uh, but they, they believe in, in seeing it through, often to a fault. Um, and you, you had to admire their resolve and their maturity. Dealing with the Afghan National Security Forces was often an absolute nightmare. But the soldiers that had to do it were the ones that tended to defend them. You know, it's a mixed story, and they wouldn't yeah. always defend them, but they, they'd say to me, no, look, this is their country. If we don't get it right for them, there's no point in being here. And they would say, we can't expect them to have the level of training that we have. Uh, I don't think that's well understood back in Australia, but the so people either. who had to understand it, the people who paid the biggest price for it, I, I thought uh, that was quite admirable. You know, there, there, there's, um, I don't think there's, a, there's such a thing as a sort of monochrome soldier. They share common traits, but uh, um, the commandos tended to be more muscular, more like the classic warrior. The Special Air Services Regiment people were very interesting. They must have very good psych testing because, you know... If you were, if it was a battle of wits, they'd almost always win. You know, they, I could tell, I could see how they were outthinking me time and time again. They, they tend, they are very clever soldiers. Um, I saw that that aid worker in a helmet. You know, that was something new for me. The notion of the armed social mm -hmm. worker. I think it's hard for us to get our head around that soldiers have this humanitarian responsibility, but they accepted it quite well. And my heart went out to them, actually. I thought, you know, here's a guy, he puts down his weapon, he picks up a shovel, and he's trying to help these people so that, you know, they can build a causeway so that they can cross the river in winter, and that's enormously important to them. And I'd ask him why he'd do it. A lot of my friends back in Australia couldn't imagine why anybody would do that sort of thing. But he'd say, no, I actually found, find it humbling at the end of the day that I can help people who desperately need it. And I think that if uh, that guy worked for the Red Cross or Care Australia, you'd say, what a great guy, yeah. you know, so, you know, why don't we think the same? Because he happens to have a weapon. Yeah, yeah. I've just got two more really quick questions to ask. Um, have you had any feedback from soldiers who have read this? Um, I've had a little bit of feedback. I tell you what, you hate making a mistake when you, <laughs> when you write a book about soldiers because they're really anal about that stuff. And of course I'm going to make mistakes because it's actually really hard to yeah. understand all the terminology and all the abbreviations and whatever. No, actually, I, I had it vetted by a soldier, so um, so hopefully there, there, there aren't too many mistakes. A few have been pointed out. I think the um, Special Forces guys are pretty happy with it. Mm. don't absolutely know for sure, but, but I think they've been waiting for their story to be told and they can't tell it themselves. That's true of all of them. You know, They'll sometimes say to me, I'm really pleased that you've told 
this story because now my wife knows what I do. Mm. And I say, well, why didn't you tell your wife? You know, they won't do that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, just finally, do you have any advice for writing journalists or anybody embarking on this kind of um, journey? About soldiering? About, well, about um, writing, you know, non-fiction, research, the whole thing. I think organisation is really important. I put organisation ahead of talent. That's the thing I've mainly learned in investigative journalism, how to marshal information, how to, to get it into a semblance where I, ha where I can manage it. And then when, I, when, I, when I'm managing it, I then have time to think. You, you really have to give yourself time to think. Um, we never have enough time. I ended up putting too much time into the research and not enough time into the writing. Um, so uh, I'd like to do it differently next time, but I doubt I will. Is there going to be a next time? What's oh, next? yeah, I'll write another book, okay. yeah. Excellent. Can't wait. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chris. Um, it really is an enlightening book. I've enjoyed reading it. Good luck with it. Thank you. You've been listening to the team from the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning programs where we help students from all over the world. I'm author of the book Power Stories, the eight stories you must tell to build an epic business. And you can find out more on my personal website, ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.